Mark of the Beast Explained. Now, this topic or this subject, the Mark of the Beast, is taken from the last book of the Bible, that is the book of Revelation. Now, what I want to do is I want to begin our address this evening by reading three verses from the book of Revelation. In fact, it's Revelation chapter 13. Now, this is where the Mark of the Beast appears, that expression. So, Revelation uh, chapter 13 and reading verses 16 to 18. Now, when we read these verses... After we've read them, I want to ask a number of questions and then answer those questions through the evening's address. So here we have it, Revelation 13 and commencing at verse 16. And he, that is the beast, which we'll explore certainly this evening, the beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and the number is six hundred, three score and six, 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 six. Now, now in those three verses, we've got a beast, We've got a number, 666, which is always associated with the term antichrist. And we've got a mark. What do they mean? What's the Bible explanation of who this beast is? What this 666 is, an antichrist, and, and what this mark is all about? Now, popular mainstream Christianity teaches that these verses that we've just read are all about a Satan a supernatural devil who in the future will take upon himself the name of Antichrist. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. And we're going to let the Bible be the expounder of the Bible. We're going to let the Bible explain who and what this Antichrist is, who or what this beast is and what this mark is. It is nothing to do with a Satan and a future Antichrist. In fact, the term Antichrist does not appear anywhere in the book of Revelation. It appears five times in the New Testament, and of those five times, it is actually a term that is given by John to describe false religious systems that would be active in his day. Now, I want you to come with me, and we're going to, we're going to explore and analyse who the Antichrist is, this 666, what this beast is and what this mark of the beast is. We're going to look at those predominantly through our address this evening, those four quotations. We're going to be having a look at um, the first epistle of John and chapter 2 and 4, and we're going to be having a look at the second Thessalonians in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at Revelation 13, where the beast is, and we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7 and answering those questions. The term Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation. It only appears in the letters that John wrote. And what John does, he talks about a false religious system that was active in his day. This is what he says 2,000 years ago. In the first letter of John and chapter 4, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Now, the word spirit there is the, is the word pneuma. It's got the idea of a breath, to breathe out. He says, don't believe the breathing out of men. But try the teachings or the breathing out of men. 
whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the breathing out of God. What's his message? Every spirit or every teaching that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. But every teaching, every breathing out that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. So you see, Antichrist has reference to false teachers who were saying, oh, Jesus Christ, he was a spirit. And the body that he had when he walked around preaching the gospel was a body that he borrowed. And when Jesus died, that body disappeared and Jesus went back as a spirit. Wrong. That was false teaching. And John says we've got false teachers in the church or in the ecclesia in the first century. And those false teachers are Antichrist. So Antichrist existed way, way, way back there 2,000 years ago. Then he goes on and says in the first of John chapter 4, and we pick up verse 3 again, but every teaching that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. It's Antichrist. And even now, already, Antichrist is in the world. Now, many churches will say, oh, Antichrist is some future being. No, John says, Antichrist, false teachers, false doctrines were existent in his day. So already present in the Apostles' time was the Antichrist. Now when you come to John, 1st of John and chapter 2, this is what he says. A little bit more information about the Antichrist and how the Bible explains what the Antichrist is. And this will help us in a moment to then start to unlock the meaning of the beast and also this mark that this beast would put in people's foreheads and in their hands. So John says... 1 John 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as you've heard, Antichrist shall come. Even now, there are many false teachers, false prophets, Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They, the Antichrists, went out from us. They were not of us. So in the first century church, or in the first century ecclesia, there were groups of men and women that began to believe wrong teachings, and they left they left and went out to start their own false teaching and their own congregations. And that would develop and develop, and as we shall see, develop, develop into enormous wrong teachings in the, in the centuries that would follow. So John says, not only are they false prophets, but they left us. They wouldn't stay with us because they didn't believe the same thing. So therefore, the origins of Antichrist, present in John's day, and they left the first century ecclesia or the first century church. Now, you know, the Bible predicted that there would be a decline in the true teachings of Christianity, already seen in those verses that we looked at in John. The Bible predicted there'd be false teachings. Now, I want you to just come back and reflect for a few moments on the reading that was read this evening. I want you to come back and to see how the Bible predicted that there would be false teachings that would, be emerge, that would emerge. So come back, if you will, to 2 Timothy very similar words to what we've read about Antichrists, teaching false teachings and, and then leaving. Well, in the second of Timothy, <clears throat> and we read these words, uh, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4. So here's the Bible predicting there'd be a decline in the true teachings of Christianity. 
Paul says, writing to Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead when he comes. So Jesus Christ is coming to set up his kingdom, and when he comes, he will then judge the living and the dead. Preach the word in verse 2, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Four. So what Paul is saying is that be very careful about when you read the Bible. Be very careful when you preach the Bible. Be very careful when you start to understand the Bible. The time is coming, in verse 3, when they will not endure sound teaching. But after their own lusts shall men heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. Well, that's very much what John was saying. They left us because they were not of us, because they were believing fables. They were believing false teaching. They were believing that Jesus was a spirit and he borrowed a body. Fables. So Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy. But then Paul says something else to another group of believers back in the first century, and this is what he says. Now I want to come and show you the development as the years roll by of false teachings and how it would blow out into an enormous congregation of people who would be false teachers. I want you to come with me, if you will, to another book of the New Testament, and this is the second of Thessalonians and chapter 2. So Paul said to Timothy, there's going to be false teachers. John talked about them as antichrists. Well, look what Paul says. This is a very, very sober warning about the, the results of men and women leaving the truth and starting to believe and teaching error. Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we'll pick up verse 1 and 2, first of all, just to set the scene, the context. Now, Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So Christ is coming. Verse 2. Don't be soon shaken in mind. Don't be troubled by spirit or by word or by letter, as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. So what's Paul saying? Paul says, listen, Christ is coming. Absolutely true, he's coming. Don't be shaken from that belief. But, Paul says, before Christ comes, something is going to happen. Verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day the day of the coming of Christ, will not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed the son of utter ruin. Now I want to put this verse on the screen and I want to <clears throat> analyse this verse. Paul says, don't be deceived, Christ is coming. No question about that. But before he comes... There is going to be a falling away first. And a man of sin is going to be revealed. What do we learn about this man of sin? Well, Paul says he's going to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, this man of sin, as God, will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now, Paul says Christ's coming. We're still waiting for him to come. But before Christ comes, there's going to be a falling away first. What does he mean by that? And what does he mean by this man of sin? Who is this man of sin? And what's this got to do with the beast 
and the mark and 666 and the Antichrist. Well, have a look at this expression that he uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Christ is coming, but before he comes, there's going to be a falling away first. What does that mean? In the Greek, <clears throat> because the New Testament was written in Greek, the word falling away is the Greek word apostasia. It means a defection. It means a revolt. So someone is going to defect. They're going to revolt against something. The word apostasia is the Greek word from which we get the English word apostasy. There's going to be an apostasy. But in the Greek, it's, it's in the definite article. And by that we mean it's not a falling away, it's the falling away. The apostasy. Something very dramatic is going to happen in the history of the Christian world where someone is going to set himself up and be the leader of a great apostasy. And that man of sin will be revealed, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitting in the temple of God, <clears throat> will show himself that he is God. A man <clears throat> would arise who will be the leader of the greatest defection from the truth that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And that religious person will sit in God's temple saying, I am God on earth. This is a quotation taken from Ferraria's dictionary. The Pope is of great dignity and so exalted that he's not a man. God and the Vicar of God the Pope is, as it were, God on earth. There's only one man in the history of this world in religious organisations that has ever, ever claimed himself as God on earth. I am in the place of God. And Paul says there's coming a defection from the truth and this man is going to set himself up, exalting himself as God on earth. No other person has claimed that title. Pope Leo XIII said this, I hold upon this earth the place of almighty God. Do we need more evidence? Well, have a look at this. I want you to just cast your eye <clears throat> to verse 7 now, of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we read in verse 4, this man is going to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God. He's going to sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now look at verse 7. But the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Paul says the apostasy is coming. But already among the believers in the early church, it's already here bubbling under the surface. It hasn't yet revealed itself as the great apostasy, but it's starting to work. I can see it, you can't. The mystery of iniquity is already working. Now, I'm going to read to you from the authorised King James Version, but it's a very tricky verse because of the old language. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked one be revealed. So the wicked one, the man of sin who opposes a God and sits in the temple of God, he's going to exist, but something or someone there, Paul says, only he who now letteth will let until the one who is letting is taken out of the way. What does that mean? 
Well, the word letteth is the old English expression and it means hindereth. So when you read that verse, Paul says that the mystery of iniquity is already working, but there's a hinderer. There's somebody who is restraining this mystery of iniquity. There's someone who's restraining this apostasy. And when this restrainer of the apostasy is removed, then the wicked one will be revealed. What does that mean? A restrainer. So someone in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, was putting the lid on this apostasy and stopping it from bubbling up and showing itself in all its ugliness or glory. The Revised Standard Version says this, with that verse, Only he who now restrains the apostasy will continue to restrain the apostasy until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Who was restraining this false teaching that would grow and grow and grow out of the first century church? Who? The pagan Roman Empire. Because in the times of the first century and second century and third century, the pagan Roman Empire inflicted so much persecution on the first century church, they didn't have time to be out there growing in population and speaking false things against God. They were too busy trying to save their lives by being persecuted by the pagan Roman authorities. And one day, in fact, in 324 AD, the restrainer, pagan Rome, was removed. And this man, in 324 AD, Christianized the whole pagan Roman world. And when Constantine, in 324, Christianized the whole Roman pagan world, he made Roman Catholicism the state religion. And then the apostasy grew and grew and grew. And the man of sin, the Pope, and there have been many antichrists, many mans of sin, all the way down through history, the papacy, the popes. That is who the antichrist is. And now we're going to show you a wealth of evidence to prove that. The Antichrist, the papacy, the restrainer, the pagan Roman world was removed and that man, Constantine, was responsible for elevating the bishops in Rome to a status they'd never experienced before and he made Roman Catholicism the state church religion. The restrainer, pagan Rome, was removed. But I want you to note this. I want you to read verse 7 again and verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2. The mystery of lawlessness, which iniquity means, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but it's under the surface. And there's a restrainer. The pagan Roman Empire is restraining the growth of this iniquity. And when the restrainer is removed, verse 8, then the wicked one, the man of sin, shall be revealed. Now listen to the next part of the verse. Whom the Lord, Jesus Christ, shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. So this man of sin, this antichrist, this apostasy is going to continue through the ages, century after century after century, until finally when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he's going to destroy the antichrist, the man of sin. And we submit to you the papacy. And there's the Pope. He's still there. Been there for centuries. Not the same fellow, but he's been there for centuries. Thousands of years. So when you read... 2 Thessalonians 2, 
the man of sin revealed, <clears throat> sitting in the temple of God, <clears throat> pardon me, claiming that he is God, the wicked one will be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And then you read these verses, and I've got them up on the screen for you. Why? Why is Jesus Christ coming to destroy the greatest defection from the truth that ever existed? Why? Because they receive not the love of the truth. That's what Paul said to Timothy. There will be false teachers having itching ears and turning away from the truth and believing error because they believe not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God would send them, those that would rather live a lie, a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be condemned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So whether we read from John, whether we read from Paul's letter to Timothy, whether we read from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the Bible is saying, there's going to be a defection from the truth and people are going to rather believe error than what the Bible is saying. What do the Protestants think about the Antichrist? Well, this is what Martin Luther said. The Pope is the Antichrist. And he said, this teaching shows forcefully... What teaching? Well, he's just read Thessalonians chapter 2. So Luther is just sitting there reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, that teaching absolutely crystal clear, is forcefully showing us that the Pope is the very Antichrist who has exalted himself above and opposed himself against Christ because he will not permit Christians to be saved without the Pope's power. And the Pope through history has said, unless you are blessed by the Holy Cross or the Holy Trinity, you will not be saved. And therefore would not permit Christians to be saved without the power from the Pope, which nevertheless is nothing, says Luther and is neither ordained nor commanded by God. The Pope urges and disseminates his papal falsehoods concerning masses, purgatory, the monastic life, one's own works, and fictitious divine worship, for this is the very papacy upon which of which the papacy is altogether founded and is standing and, condem and condemns. So the papacy condemns, murders and tortures all Christians who would not exalt and honour these abominations of the Pope above all things. So Luther was pretty clear on who the Antichrist and 2 Thessalonians 2 was talking about. But we're not going to hang our hat on Luther. We're going to hang our hat on the Bible. So the word Antichrist, Antichristos, according to Vine's Expository Dictionary, can either mean against Christ or instead of Christ, or even combining the two. One who, assuming the guise of Christ, opposes Christ. And that's exactly what the papacy does. I am Christ. I am God on earth. All right, that's the Antichrist. Nothing mysterious about it. It's about false teachers who would leave the true church of God or the true ecclesia. Now keep that with you. Now let's go and have a look at the beast and see what this, this Antichrist has got to do with the beast. Now, now I've got there Revelation 13. You won't see the text. I'm struggling to see it from back there, but there's Revelation 13. And we read the last three verses of this chapter to begin our address this evening. Now, we've got a chapter about the beast. So now we're going to unlock this beast, this number, and the mark and see how that locks into what we said about the Antichrist. False teachers, a system who would oppose Christ and one day Christ would destroy this religious system. Now, when you come to Revelation 13, you read about a beast. The very beginning, John in vision. Now, this is not a, a literal creature. It's symbolic. There's John in Revelation 13, and he sees a vision. He stands on the seashore, and he sees a beast, a creature, come out of the sea. And when he looks at it, it looks like a leopard. 
It's got the feet of a bear. It's got the mouth of a lion. It's got seven heads and ten horns on one of the heads. It's not real. It's not literal. It's a symbolic creature. What's what's it a symbol of? We'll talk about that in a minute. Then John sees another beast. And you read in in verse 11, and there arose another beast out of the earth. So one comes out of the sea. This one comes out of the earth. Looks like a lamb. It's got two horns like a lamb. When it opens its mouth, it speaks like a dragon. Then John looks again, and he sees an image of a beast. The word image is icon in the Greek, a photocopy. He sees a photocopy of this one, that this one had authority to make. It gets a bit confusing. What is this about? You've got these beasts, these symbolic creatures in Revelation. Let's let the Bible tell us, first of all, what a beast is. Then we'll start to explore some of the details, not all of them, some of them. The Bible shows us that beasts are, well, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. I'll get you to come back with me, if you will, to Daniel 7. What's a beast? And does this unlock the beasts of Revelation? Oh, yes, it does. So let the Bible explain to us how the Bible presents beasts in the Bible and what beasts do, in fact, mean. We'll come back to, to Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you're, very, if you're very astute and your mind's flowing very nicely, I just talked about... In verse 1 to 3, John saw a beast come out of the sea, looked like a leopard, had the feet like the feet of a bear, and had the mouth like the mouth of a lion. So you've got a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Hmm. Look at Daniel 7. And have a look at verse 1 and 2. In the first year, now this is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. In Daniel, Daniel's in captivity, he's in Babylon, and he has a dream. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And the visions of his head were upon his bed, and then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea, and in verse 3, and four great beasts came up from the sea, different from each other. And what Daniel saw, he saw a lion. And then he looked and saw another creature come out of the sea. He saw a bear. Then he saw a leopard. And then he saw a fourth terrible beast. It's not described as an animal, just a fourth terrible beast. Got iron teeth and brass claws. What are the beasts? Well, the Bible explains them. Verse 17, Daniel chapter 7. What are these beasts? Verse 17, Daniel 7. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Ah, so. The beasts are powers. They are kingdoms. They are a symbolic representation of four great world powers. Now, if you want to do some real Bible research and some Bible study, you flick back to Daniel 2. We're not going to go back there. But in Daniel chapter 2, this is the dream Daniel had in Daniel 7. He saw four world empires, and they were beasts, animals. When you go to Daniel 2, Daniel doesn't have this dream. The king of Babylon has this dream, and he dreams about this great big image. It's got a head of gold. It's got arms and chest of silver. It's got a belly and thigh of brass and iron legs. And the king of Babylon said, what what is this dream? I don't understand it. Well, Daniel comes and interprets it, and Daniel says this. You, king of Babylon, are the head of gold. 
That's in verse 38 of Daniel 2. You're the head of gold. Ah, so I'm a kingdom. Yes, you are. And you're represented as the head of gold. And in verse 39, and after you, king of Babylon, there shall be another kingdom that will arise. They were the Medes and Persians. And then after you, Medes and Persians, a third kingdom of brass, which were the Greeks. And then the fourth kingdom, which was Rome, would be seen as these two iron legs. So Daniel 2, four world empires. Daniel 7, four world empires. Daniel sees these same four world empires as animals. The king of Babylon sees these four world empires as a great mighty man. So you can see their mindset, can't you? So they are exactly the same. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. So the Bible's explanation of beasts are world powers or kingdoms. Now when you look at this fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7, there are two critical facts we need to just tuck away in our mind. The first one is this, is that the fourth beast of Daniel 7 is Rome. Now read with me, if you will, from verse 19 and verse 23. Daniel was really troubled about this fourth beast. Why? Verse 19, Daniel says, I want to know, I want to know all about this fourth world empire, which was so different from the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. This is so different. I want to know. This is before Rome hit the pavement. Rome doesn't exist yet. Daniel's hundreds of years before Rome ever existed, but he wants to know about this fourth kingdom. Well, look at verse 23. Thus he saith, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Why did Daniel want to know all about this fourth kingdom? Well, I'll tell you this. This fourth beast is destroyed at the coming of Christ. Have a look at verse 11 of Daniel 7. And I, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn, which was on the top of this beast, spake and i beheld even till the beast the fourth beast rome rome would be destroyed with the coming of the lord jesus christ isn't that exactly what we read in second of thessalonians chapter 2 about the man of sin who would be revealed a great apostasy would come a defection from the truth and he would be destroyed with the brightness of christ's coming so back there in Daniel 7, the fourth kingdom, Rome. But where is Rome today? Pagan Rome disappeared in the 5th century. Ah, but Rome exists today. The Roman Catholic Church. Rome exists today and will be destroyed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want more proof? That this beast, now here in Revelation, is the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. What Daniel wanted to know, John in Revelation was given all this detail. So when you go to Revelation and you read about these beasts, this is Rome. Not pagan Rome, this is Christian Rome or papal Rome. As it developed down through the history of the ages. Proof? Well, we look at this beast and we go, okay, I think the Bible tells me that beasts are kingdoms or powers. How do I know this is Christian Rome? How do I know this is papal Rome? Well, God gives us some clues. It's got a number. This beast has got a number. And it's the number of a man. And the number is 666. Has that got anything to do with Rome? Oh, yeah. Has it got anything to do with the apostasy and the man of sin who sits in the temple of God claiming that he has got? Oh, yeah. 
Now, when you have a look at the Greek and the Hebrew alphabet, let's go back here. The New Testament revelation was written in Greek. And it says here, here is wisdom, that him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. The beast, I want to give you a clue as to who this beast is. We're saying it's the fourth kingdom of Daniel. It's Rome. Well, it is. How do we know? It's got a number, and the number is 666. What does that mean? Well, do you know, in the Greek and the Hebrew alphabet, they've got numerical equivalents to the alphabet itself. In English, we've got alpha, the alphabet, and we've got numbers. They're both different, but not so in the Greek or in the Hebrew. In Greek and Hebrew, we have one set of characters that are both used for words and numbers. So when you write a word in Greek, the book of Revelation was written in Greek, when you write a, letter, a word in Greek, it's got a, an equivalent mathematical value. The number of the beast is 666. This beast is Rome. Well, let's have a look at that. This beast is Rome. If you were a Greek and you wanted to identify Rome, you would call them the Latin man. Oh, they are the Latin-speaking man. That's Rome. And if I'm a Greek person, I would use the word in the Greek, Latinos. And when I say in the Greek, Latinos, I'm referring to the Latin-speaking man, the Roman man. Now, there is Latinos, the Greek word, and there is its equivalent number, each letter. Lambda, Alpha, Tor, Epsilon, all got equivalent numbers. So the Greek's expression to describe the Roman man, the Latin man, is Latinos. And that adds up to 666. This beast is known by the Greeks as Latinos, the Latin man. 666. Now, when you have a look at the mark of this Latin power, this apostasy. When you look at the mark, when Revelation was written, and here's the mark, the mark of this Latin man, this apostasy, this great Latin power that would be destroyed at the coming of Christ. It says there that this beast, this Latin power, this religious apostate system, would cause small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And you won't be able to buy, you won't be able to enter into commerce, you won't be able to associate with other people unless you've got this mark in your forehead and in your hand. What does that mean? Well, when Revelation was written, even before when Revelation was written, and way after Revelation was written, it was common practice for slaves, soldiers and devotees to bear an imprint of those who claimed control over them. And the impression was generally in the forehead or the hand as a token of their servitude. In fact, slaves were styled literus or literatus. It means lettered. So a slave would have their master's name lettered on their forehead as a symbol that they were under their master's control or their master's rule. And alluding to this custom, the book of Revelation predicted a religious system that would distinguish itself by a certain sign or mark as a symbol of their faith and their power over those whom they would impose upon them. Priests took upon themselves the vow of obedience and they received in their hands. The priest would go and cross his hands 
and to be ordinated, he would have the sign of the Holy Cross put in both of his hands by the priest who oversaw that. Children, when they're christened, or infants, when they're christened, the priest will take the holy water and put the holy cross on their forehead to show that they were dedicated and superintended over by this religious system. And devotees to Catholicism make the sign of the holy cross. And they do this with their fingers. They put two fingers out and three fingers down. And in the Catholic system, the three fingers that face downwards spoke of the Trinity. The two fingers above that were the types of Christ. He was both human and he was of God. He was God himself. And so when the Pope blesses you, or when you do the sign of the cross, it is in the name of the Father, and then in the name of the Son. And that across they go to the right shoulder and to the left shoulder. They cross themselves. That's the mark. And through you do, you do your research. You do the research of the history of the Roman Catholic Church and any heretic that did not believe the Catholic system was that ordained by God, they had crosses placed around their neck, two of them, which were a different colour to their garments, and they sent these heretics with two crosses, different colour to their garments, into a Catholic-prone area, and all the Catholics would watch them, knowing the fact that they wore two crosses and they were branded as heretics, and the Catholics would watch them to make sure they didn't revert back to their heresy, which means they reverted back to not believing that the Catholic was the true religion. Even the Crusaders that went to murder in the name of God, ordained by the Catholics, the Crusaders went out. And do you know what the word crusade means? It comes from the French word, which means to be signed by the cross. And they wore the cross on their tunics. And they had the cross, whether they were a Templar or Hospitaler, they went with their cross, the mark of the Holy Cross. And the Catholic, they're the only religion. Well, you do have Hinduism, who put a dot in their forehead as an expression of their devotion to their Hindu God. But the Catholic system, the religious system that broke away from the true teachings of Jesus Christ and became that great apostasy that Paul talked about in the Second Thessalonians is the only system that has a mark. And if you didn't have that mark, you do your reading in history. If you did not have that mark associated with your devotion to the Roman Catholic Church, you were excommunicated from the church and you were forbidden to sell, buy, even participate in anything to do with society. That is the mark of the beast. And that is the system who have powerfully corrupted the simple, beautiful teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. God invites you and me to a challenge. We've only touched the surface of this topic. God says in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing but the honour of kings is to search out the matter. And the word thing in the Hebrew and the word matter in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word debar, and it means the word. God has written his Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. He's written his word, and he's written it in such a way that it demands our rigorous attention, not leaving it in the hands of the Pope, or leaving it in the hands of ministers of religion who give their interpretation of what they think the Bible means. But God says, you, all of you in this room, you have the honour of kings in the age to come to search out the word that God in his glory has written. And that demands our time and our attention, enthusiasm and rigour. And that's the challenge. We've only touched the surface of the beast and the mark the 666 of the Antichrist. 
Read yourself rich. Do some research. You'll be amazed at what the Bible says about that system and the exhortation the Bible gives you and me to make sure that when Christ comes, we'll be ready for his return, when he shall destroy all the error that has stooped people in superstition over this life.